0: Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 154. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute.
1: Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself.
0: Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay, and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift.
2: You remember them from your childhood. half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack, and Little Audrey, you read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun I Did Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today.
1: Long title Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch.
2: Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down and his songwriter with an enlightening name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family's savings on a multi-seat tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. Fitz changed the fortunes for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format film and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Bear Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today.
0: You can now order my latest book, The TTV Scrapbook from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue. Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have a writer whose book, Boris Karloff, The Man Remembered, has inspired this episode devoted to the master of horror boris karloff here he is gorge shriver hi this is mark arnold with another fun ideas podcast and today we have a special guest an author of a book about uh, the incredible boris karloff which he is one of my favorite actors so that's why i wanted to talk to this man his name is gorge shriver how are you sir
1: that's fine thanks mark pleasure All to right. be here
0: very good okay um First of all, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in Boris Karloff enough to write a book about
1: him. Let me see. Well, I'm a skinny kid from New Jersey. Um, I live in greater Atlanta now. And um, I was one of those baby boomer kids who grew up in the 60s watching creature features and um, watching the monsters and uh, reading famous monsters of film land. And um, I liked, so I was familiar with you know, all the classic universal stuff and all the great, you know, uh, pop culture we had in the 60s, all well, the TV shows and, uh, you know, memorabilia and merchandise and stuff like this. Well, I liked reading biographies when I was a kid. And after Boris died, Forrest Ackerman put out a little book about him, um, which was largely reprints from Famous Monsters, but it was called The Franken-Science Monster uh, by Forrest Ackerman, who was the editor of the magazine. Mm -hmm. and uh, I was given a copy of that, and he'd only been dead two or three years, and he seemed like an interesting person. So I'd go to the school library and just look up uh, what he'd done. I knew, he, of course, he'd been the monster and the Universal films, but I thought, like, oh, he did Broadway, and he did Arsenic Old Lace, and he did radio, (laughs) and he did Thriller. So um, I just looked at anything I could find that mentioned him, and then it occurred to me, well, he's only been gone a few years. There must be people around, actors, directors, whatever, who had worked with him. Mm-hmm. So I started, um, while still in high school, writing to them a manual typewriter. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> pardon me. And what's amazing is, here I was, 15, 16 years old. Um, and I didn't know if I would hear from anybody. But the amazing thing was that I did. Uh, these people didn't know me from anybody, but <laughs> the fact that they took the time to sit down and write uh, a letter tells you something about how much Boris Karloff meant to those people.
0: Mm-hmm. And who were you writing to? Uh, just anybody and everyone that he worked with? or
1: yeah, Yes, any name person um, who's, you know, who's, uh, who was pr- mentioned in something. I mean, I was writing to people like uh, Jonathan Winters and uh, Julie Harris. And Peter Bogdanovich and uh, um, let me see, you know, um, uh, just about anybody um, later, I was able to contact because I learned who they were more of the uh, uh, behind the scenes people, you know, the writers and the producers and the directors. But largely, I was just writing the stars. (laughs) Mm. Um, And uh, I mean, Peter Bogdanovich had just finished shooting Paper Moon when he wrote to me about working with Boris just five years prior on Targets.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, was Targets his first film? Not Carlos, but Doug Donovich's.
1: Yes, yeah, it was his first first full. uh, He worked on something called, like, Women of the Prehistoric Planet. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, but in terms of his film, um, uh, you know, that uh, Roger Corman helped uh, uh, put into gear, yeah targets what is considered Bogdanovich's first movie um and because uh, he was working for Corman and he wanted to be a director and Corman mm-hmm. said well okay yeah you can but here's the conditions you got to use X amount of money you have to use some footage from the terror a movie I made with Boris and you have to uh, use Boris who owes me a few days of work mm. and uh amazingly under these uh conditions um uh, Bogdanovich and his wife at the time uh, wrote this movie and and they made it
3: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. and was Targets considered like Boris's last real film because it's kind of sketchy after that it seems like he did like four films or so after that that were released even two or three years after his death in like That's Spain right. and stuff like or Mexico or something <laughs> yeah, you can clarify it I, I know the story okay. basically
1: <laughs> Yes, you're, you're correct but uh um, he considered, Boris did, uh, Targets to be his last film. Um, it was his first, uh, his last, like full Hollywood production, you know, mm-hmm. by a major studio filmed in Hollywood with Hollywood people. And um, uh, and actually, he even lived to see it uh, finished. I mean, he died just a few months after it was released, but Bogdanovich ran it for him. Uh, so Boris got to see the final film which we was pleased with but yes uh, uh, he signed on to make uh, four, uh, they're often referred to as the Mexican movies because um, it was a, a production company in Mexico that co-financed these things and uh, Boris had terrible emphysema then and uh, could not physically travel to Mexico uh, because of the altitude um, and so his scenes were shot um, in in Hollywood. Hmm. Um, but they were uh, um, just like uh, really cheap movies. <laughs> um, I have, personally have a really hard time sitting through them because they're uh, so poorly made. Um, they have Mexican actors, but everything about them, the editing, the dubbing, um, is just awful. Hmm. Um, and it's just kind of excruciating to sit through these bad scenes with dub actors waiting for Boris to show up. Mm. And so, uh, but some were released to, uh, I think, some uh, Spanish-speaking theaters within a year or two. But uh, uh, then when home video came around, uh, they resurfaced, but they were uh, not quite lost movies, but they were really <laughs> hard to find if anybody really had a desire to see them. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Now I've seen a a, a a huge amount of Carlos sound films. I don't know if I've seen any of his silent films, but um, of those Mexican movies, we'll jump back to the beginning of Carlos' career. But I'm like curious about this part right now. Um, did did he speak Spanish, or is it just dubbed, or how, or they just use subtitles? What did they do on those?
1: Well, uh, he, he spoke English, um, okay. and his it's his voice. If you watch the movie. Uh, doing the dubbing i mean uh as i said it's his voice okay but uh um as far as i know all the other um english voices you hear are dubbed um (laughs) so i uh i mean when he was doing scenes with these people they must have been speaking some english but uh um you know while they were shooting in hollywood but yeah um i think uh uh, I don't know if they were completed in Hollywood. I don't think so, but uh, my point being that I th- think they did work in Mexico after they did his scenes.
3: Hmm.
0: Now, how did they get four films out? Of it was just a case of just milking the the cow dry, as it
1: were. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's a good question, and I, I really don't have a good answer for that, but, okay. um, uh, but um, Jack Hill, the American director and uh, writer, Uh, worked on a couple of them and uh but it was uh i I don't know how it came to be that the powers that be wound up writing four quick (laughs) drive-in level movies to put boris karloff in i mean um i don't know whether it was planned as a series or what but uh um Personally, to me, the less said about them, the better. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know. I'm asking more questions about it. Yeah. It it does sound kind of like the end of Bella Lugosi's life, where, you know, Ed Wood took up scrap, you know, footage and just threw it anywhere, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of interesting that, you know, the two kind of sort of rivals, which we'll talk about that at some point, you know, uh, you know, had the same kind of similar kind of sad ending, as it were, on their film careers. But anyway, let's go to the opposite end of uh, Boris Karloff's career. So uh, everybody knows Frankenstein, 1931, but he was already in his 40s by that time. Um, What did he... Start off doing. Was he on stage, and what was his first films when there was silence?
1: Let me see. Well, um, he came over from England to Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was wanted to be an actor. He was the youngest of a large family, and to be an actor, he was considered the black sheep of the family. (laughs) And so uh, um, he thought, well, I can either go uh, in those days. I could either go to Canada or Australia. So he used to say he flipped a coin. He ended up in Canada so he uh he never took an acting class in his life but he started acting uh just as a a novice in these little tiny theater companies um in canada uh that would just go to you know these traveling theater companies you know uh, pack up the scenery move it to a town put it up to do the show pack it up move on to the next town and so uh, he gradually worked his way down to california uh doing theater and um uh then just doing manual labor in hollywood and in those days he'd be like the third spear carrier from the left or you know, <laughs> um you know uh that kind of thing um uh, i've been an extra so in myself so i know what that's like but so he was just an extra in the in the silent movies um and so he's going back and forth between the silent movies and uh you know laying uh I mean, carrying bags of cement and driving a truck. I mean, doing manual labor. And what's amazing is, he did that for almost 20 years um, (laughs) uh, in Los Angeles. Um, uh, You know, and it was as you say, he was. was, uh, He was 44 when Frankenstein was released, and uh, but he, you know, gradually the small parts. He worked up to to, you know getting sound rolls, and then. uh, and, and some not some bad you know uh, you know early '30s films, and James Whale, who was a prominent director in those days, had seen him in a gangster movie called Graft, mm. and just thought Boris's uh, physical look was interesting, mm. and so uh, he called Boris over in the commissary at Universal and said, "Well, I'd like you to test for the monster in Frankenstein,"
3: mm-hmm.
1: and you know Boris thought at first, "Really." I'm gonna be a monster, but he knew that James whale was too good a director to say no to so he mm-hmm. said so many words I'm in mm-hmm. and um, and they made the film but uh, so it was a um, it was a long time before he became an overnight success
0: <laughs> right um, now on that particular film Frankenstein he is just billed as Karloff mm-hmm. and of course his real name is what William Henry Pratt—is that what it is?
1: Yes, yeah. yes. William Henry Pratt. Um,
0: and where did the Boris Karloff come along? And did he use it on stage or just in film?
1: Uh, both. Uh, oh. He did use it on stage, um, uh, you know, in uh, when he was a starving actor um, and before he became a well-fed actor. And <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, uh, he used to say in interviews, and Boris was a mysterious person to some extent. I mean, um, uh, he kept parts of his life private, because that's the kind of person he was. He used to say that Karloff came from somewhere uh, in his family, in his heritage, but that's never been verified. He And he added that Boris was his own idea. So where the name Boris Karloff really came from is anybody's guess.
0: Now, what is his ethnic background? Obviously, he's British, but I mean, d- did he have any Russian ancestry to come up with a name like Karloff, or no?
1: Uh, no. Or, um, or... In fact, his ancestry is actually East Indian.
0: Oh, okay. That I didn't yes.
1: know. <laughs> yeah. um, the, like the, the the movie and story of The King and I. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna was the, you know, uh, the woman in the story of The King and I, which was a true story. Um, well, um Anna was Boris Karloff's great aunt. And so uh and if you uh so there was uh, uh I believe Boris's mother was East Indian.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um and she looks at at the you know picture what few pictures I've seen of her. And so you know the board the, the British were stationed in India for years. Mm-hmm. And so there was just uh um um you know, there was just Indian blood in his family. Um, and if you look at pictures of his brothers later on, they all have, uh, uh, you know, dark eyes and dark eyebrows. And even people who knew Boris told me that his skin tone was darker than that of most Englishmen that they knew. So there was certainly uh, Indian blood um, in his family. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that would account, I guess, for the attraction by whale of Carlos of exotic looks, as you said. So.
1: <laughs> yes. And when, and when he was a starving actor, he was often put in exotic roles in the movies. I mean, you know, he'd be like uh, an Arab sheikh or, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, Mexican villain or half-breed. Or, in other words, his looks lent itself uh to those kinds of uh parts
0: mm-hmm. now before we continue is this career okay so the name of your book is called boris karloff the man remembered and clear this up for me so i saw two different versions of it so have there been two different versions of it is that what happened
1: yes yes okay. this is the, this is the uh the current version is the new expanded revised And I think even better version. Mm -hmm. But yes, it first came out in 04 from another publisher. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I spent um, just as you can probably tell by now, decades, you know, researching (laughs) it. And so uh, um, I sat down and wrote the book. It took me about three months to physically write. It took me uh, four years to get it published. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's the uh, what I call the red copy, the first one that came out. And um, that was in print for several years. And then my publisher said, uh, we're not going to publish books anymore. Um, um, Yeah, after several years, they just decided uh, to go out of publishing the book entirely. So we kind of, uh, uh, I bought the rights back from them. And uh, my pandemic project was uh, um, expanding and revising it. Mm. And uh, and that's the version out now um, from uh, Bear Manor Media.
0: Okay. Uh, so if somebody had purchased the earlier version, what are they missing if, to get them to buy the new one? Besides, like, what did you revise?
1: <laughs> okay. Well, um, I, there are some uh, uh, there were some credits of his uh, that in the back of the book that got left out the first time. Um, there are far more photographs. Um, I was kept to a bare minimum by the first people and uh, Bear Manor, you know, uh, just let me kind of put in as many as I wanted because I've got about 35 in there. Um, And so uh, there's many more photos, as I said, and I did uh, some more interviews, pardon me, um, since the first one came out. So uh, uh, those interviews, that information I gleaned from them and uh, uh, other background information on some of his productions are what's new in this edition.
0: Okay. And um, what, I mean, you said you're a lifelong fan. Um, what was the clincher? Was it Frankenstein or something else that made you a Karloff fan?
1: Well, um, I uh you know, there's the uh, Lugosi uh you know bastion of fans and there's the carlo fans and mm-hmm. stuff like this and uh, i never i didn't dislike bell lagosi mm-hmm. but um uh, i i liked boris's acting style i liked his uh on-screen manner mm-hmm. um even when i'd see him on things like uh the girl from uncle or i spy or right. the name of the game um they were just you know i i just Um, he was just such a subtle actor and he just had this personality that came right out of the screen Mm -hmm. and so I suppose that's part of what appealed to me about him and plus the more I learned about him I learned just really what a uh, wonderful, kind giving British gentleman he was. Mm -hmm.
0: And um... For your book, did you interview, like, Sarah Karloff, his daughter, or anybody related to him, or strictly people that worked behind the scenes or with him?
1: Well, I didn't interview Sarah, um, but uh, she, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, gave her blessing um, when we met, um, and, um, you know, so I I had uh, her approval, as it were, but I was also lucky enough, even though we never met, I did correspond with Evelyn Karloff, Boris's mm. widow. Oh. Um, she was some years younger than Boris mm. um, and uh, she lived to be almost 90. And, uh, but uh, back in the early eighties, I found her address, um, it was in the London phone book if you can believe it. Mm. And uh, I, I, I just, I started writing to her and told her who I was. And at first she thought, well, you know, like uh, what's the appeal? I don't know really why you want to do this. Um, and, uh, but I guess, uh, I, I turned her around (laughs) somehow, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I, so we were pen pals for several years and she was very helpful. She helped me put in touch. Uh, she helped put me in touch with, uh, certain people whom I did contact for the book, um, that I wouldn't have, uh, um, probably been able to reach otherwise. And, um, so, but, and she filled in some gaps here and there. Uh, for me. So she I had her support. And, um, and, uh, you know, at one point, she did read some of that in progress. And she said, I think you're doing a really nice job. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never met her, though, I did go to London in 89. Mm-hmm. Um, as she had an apartment in London. And I hoped to meet her then, because I said, I'm coming to London, is there any way I can meet you? And at first she said, Sure, you know, I'd, certainly. And um, But even into her uh, golden years, she was still quite the traveler, so she was actually uh, not home uh, the very week I was there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't get to see her at all, but I did uh, see the church in London where Boris's memorial plaque is, and I did meet one of his directors. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, um, going on as widow there, um, I don't know much about her. (laughs) Um, Is she a British lady or what – describe her
1: Evelyn yep. Yes. Yep. Yes, yeah yes yes Evelyn um was british and um she uh she had been married to an actor uh a stage and film actor named Tom Helmore
3: hmm.
1: um he uh largely was a stage actor but he did make some american movies hmm. and like designing women with gregory peck he was in the time machine with rod taylor oh. um uh advice and consent but uh um but he's probably most well known to american moviegoers he's kim novak's husband in vertigo <laughs> oh
3: um, okay mm-hmm. who
1: hires jimmy stewart you know to tailor
3: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. and uh, so that was tom hellmore that was evie's first husband mm. um and so and she was a a minor uh, actress when she started out but um, she wound up uh, um, she was an assistant story editor for David O. Selznick.
3: Hmm.
1: And later she also worked uh, during the war as a secretary to Morris Evans, whom most Americans now know as uh, Samantha's father run Bewitched, right? <laughs> Or Doctor Zayus in Planet of the Apes. Yeah, <laughs> um, although you wouldn't be able to tell that it was Morris Evans from right, <laughs> just his um, voice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, just like you know James uh, Whitmore's voice and Roddy mm-hmm. McDowell's voice and all that. But mm-hmm. anyway, so uh, but she worked for Morris Evans, yeah. and uh, during the war, so uh, she worked over here, and you know she met Boris, and. Um, they got married in 1946 and stayed married until his death. Hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Is uh, was she Boris's only wife, or did he get married? Any... Uh, no, um,
1: let me. She was actually. Um, uh, there's been some question about this, but um, <laughs> as I understand it, she was number five. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Boris's mother. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, Sarah's mother. Uh, <laughs> Boris's uh, wife, Dorothy. Uh, he was married to, uh, when Sarah was born. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Dorothy was number four, okay. um, but he, when he was young and unknown, uh, that during those struggling actor days in Canada, uh, and such, um, he met a, a few women and was married to them very briefly. Mm. Uh, and, uh, when he was just totally unknown, but, uh, but he met Dorothy, um, they were married the year before Frankenstein mm-hmm. in nineteen thirty and stayed married until nineteen forty six um, Sarah was born in thirty eight so um there were uh five total
0: mm-hmm. wow and uh is Sarah' his only child she's the only one I've ever really heard of so
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah Sarah was the sole child of Boris and Dorothy mm-hmm. okay okay,
0: and um what was I going to ask about uh during uh, all those years that he was making most of his Hollywood pictures, I guess he made pictures in Europe too. Um, where was he residing? Did he reside in England most of the time, or well, both both countries, U.S. and? Well, UK? you're
1: uh, you're, uh, um, you're right. Uh, um, he lived in uh, Hollywood uh-huh. once he became a star. Um, mm-hmm. He lived in Hollywood until the uh, late 50s and now he did have a uh, now for example like in the 50s when he was doing a lot of Broadway when he was doing Peter Pan with uh, Gene Arthur in which he played Captain Hook and he was in The Lark uh, on Broadway with Julie Harris um, he had an apartment uh, he and uh, Evelyn did they had an apartment in the Dakota apartment in New York uh, you know where where John Lennon lived and You know Lauren Bacall and so they had an apartment in London and um and uh at one point he was doing a TV series in London so they had a, a apartment over there flat as they you know they called them but uh um, but he moved over they moved um to England permanently in 59 and stayed there but um, they would go, you know, they traveled all over the world, wherever their work, wherever work was. Right. And if he was staying in Hollywood, you know, they would stay at a certain hotel there all the time. And uh, so, uh, um, uh, you know, he had homes uh, largely in uh, New York and uh, California, as I said, until they relocated to London for good.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, from what you know about Boris, it's like once he did Frankenstein, well, even before that, you know, he uh, pretty much, I wouldn't say workaholic, but he did consistently work up until his death. Was that by choice or he just uh, had to work? <laughs> was his...
1: Well, I think uh, one person who really had to work, uh, sadly, was Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, uh, you know, he just, uh, his career, sagged in the 40s right. and uh um plus his personal problems and so uh you know lugosi was just taking um uh, you know whatever he could get uh he wasn't getting offered a any pictures anymore um right. and boris uh boris just loved working i mean um there were some years when he'd have four or five pictures out right um, uh, and uh, i mean like and, and so uh, uh, but he, he just loved working and, but he enjoyed his home life too. He liked uh, working in the garden and playing cricket with his fellow British uh, actors who were known as the British colony in Hollywood. Uh, people like Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone and stuff like this, uh, you know, would play cricket um, and uh, uh, the Hollywood Cricket Club. So, uh, but even as Boris got older and um, more unwell, because he had arthritis, and as I said, emphysema. I mean, uh, he was comfortable enough that he could have uh, uh, not worked. I mean, he worked because he wanted to, not because he had to. People would say toward, you know, like his 70s, well, you know, Boris, like, why don't you retire? Aren't you comfortable enough that you can just, you know, rest on your laurels? And his attitude was, well, what would I do? I mean, um, You know, you can just watch so many cricket games. And so uh, um, he just had no desire to retire at all, mm-hmm. even though, it was, you know, as his health got worse. Yeah. I mean, uh, his last TV, his last performance period on film was in The Name of the Game, mm-hmm. the TV series with Gene Barry. Um, and um, there was a whole real sense of excitement. The director told me about, well, Boris Karloff is going to be in our show. You know, uh, <laughs> we got this great cast where we've got Boris Karloff. And so uh, they wheeled him onto the stage set, and um, he said we were all kind of, you know, uh, sobered by seeing this frail old man in a wheelchair, um, you know, who had an oxygen uh, uh, unit nearby, um, uh, just in case. But he said uh, Boris knew his lines left and right, shook his hands and said, like, uh, what, in so many words, what you see is not encouraging, but entirely at your service and he said he never you know missed a beat knew his lines you know hit all his marks um Mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing um for an 80 year old man right
0: now obviously he did a few different movies which i might i'll probably ask about that weren't of the horror genre once he got kind of typecast as frankenstein Mm um but uh did he mind doing the horror films or did he mind doing them when they got a little bit cheesy and schlocky later on and weren't oh, so sophisticated?
1: I, I don't think he minded doing them. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, he enjoyed playing these kinds of characters, but I, um, uh, I think over time, uh, I think he, um, being so associated with them to the exclusion of some of his other work, I think, probably uh, rankled him to some extent. Mm-hmm. But because he was such a, a, a classic gentleman, you know, he didn't verbalize that,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, you know, in the public, uh, you know, in interviews and stuff like this. And uh, but um, uh, because he was really a very good, serious actor, but he was typecast. He said he didn't mind being typecast. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, even Vincent Price used to say this. I mean, you know, look at John Wayne. He was typecast. I mean, um, you know, uh, you know, and, and Vincent was typecast and Peter Lorre was typecast, mm-hmm. even though all of them had done, you know, straight work in straight movies. Right. And, um, but, you know, it developed, uh, helped to develop, uh, you know, a following for Boris mm-hmm. Um I mean, uh, that's one thing I think that helped make him. That helped. Uh, you see, he uh, he and Vincent, and uh, well, Vincent was younger. People like uh, Basil Rathbone and Peter Laurie, um, they they lived into the television era, mm-hmm. and so um, that not only were their movies being shown on television, but they were they were still working on television. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, consistent new generations of movie and TV goers uh, learned who these people were. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, audiences in the 60s knew who Boris and Peter Lorre and Basil Rathbone were, just as they did, for example, in the 40s. Mm-hmm. So they were never out of uh, fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, they were always known.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were times when Boris would have liked to have done something else, um, and, uh, but he wasn't really being offered, uh, in movies, uh, many straight roles really. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and, and said, he just, and there were some movies that were, um, you know, it's kind of say weren't very good uh, <laughs> and, he, and he's the best thing about them. yeah Um, but it was just, uh, you know, he, he just liked the, uh, energy and the, uh, vitality of being on a set and working
0: Hmm. now when he was occasionally offered a role that wasn't of the horror genre the one comes to mind is like the secret life of walter mitty he has a pretty decent Mm -hmm. role in there as a doctor and stuff like that yes um and it's not a horror role at all did he relish those or just treat everything as it's another acting role and i enjoy acting
1: well, I think he probably enjoyed it because, I mean, you know, that film was a Danny Kaye comedy. Right. And, um, you know, so, gave, so he gave him, a, you know, uh, um, a chance for movie audiences to see him be funny. I mean, later on, as I said, when television came along, he was on a variety of shows, people like Red Skelton and Milton Berle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they saw, oh, wow, this man's actually funny, too. I mean, <laughs> he's not just, you know, the horror actor. Mm -hmm. and uh, but I think Boris really enjoyed it and he did some really good uh, straight roles in the 30s like the House of Rothschild um, uh, with George Arliss and the Lost Patrol directed by John Ford and uh, um, you know so uh, um, uh, you know he had his straight roles and uh, um, so he uh, um, um, you know but I think he liked stretching his talent and uh, um, they were, uh, in fact, at one point, when the uh, play uh, Dial M for Murder, which, of course, was the Hitchcock movie with Ray Milan, um actor John Williams, who worked for Hitchcock a lot, played the detective in that. And, in fact, when it was done on Broadway, Morris Evans, Boris's friend, played the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was con- at one point, Boris was considered... Uh, for the National Road Company of the play when it toured the U.S. Um, And uh, I think it would have been wonderful in it, but he just, you know, that did not come to be. Um, So uh, that's why when he did uh, The Lark with Julie Harris in the 50s, uh, the play about Jonah Lark, uh, you know it was like um, it was a, just a wonderful stage role for him. And in fact, he got nominated for a Tony Award for that, which was the only time in his life he was nominated for a major acting award
0: hmm. Another movie that I like, but not everyone likes it, but it's also touted <laughs> as like a sequel to. Phantom of the Opera but I I don't know I think it just it uses the sets and the same main star the the opera singer lays the climax and uh, mm-hmm. you know I think he does a really good credible you know acting job and it's more straight role on that he's the villain of course but you know it's like yeah but you know it's not like a horror film in the traditional sense if, if at mm-hmm. all um, did he ever comment about things like that it's not well known but you know it's mm-hmm. like I liked it when I saw it <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i i think personally from my standpoint i think he's underused in the movie mm-hmm. um he's not in it as much as i would like him to be i think there's a little too much with turhan Bey, yeah. but uh, um uh but uh, no i think he i think it was just as i said he just liked the work yeah. um and uh um it's just uh, i don't think he uh got too hung up on principles or
3: okay. um, <laughs>
1: If you see what I'm saying yeah. and uh, um, but he was just and when he had a chance to um even while still in Hollywood, if he had a chance to go back and do an act on stage um, he would I mean he appeared on stage in the forties mm-hmm. uh, in on borrowed time, which was a movie with Lionel Barrymore, mm-hmm. and he later did the play several times during his career, mm-hmm. even here in Atlanta where I live, um, he came here in nineteen fifty and did it at a theater in the round. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so he had a chance to, uh, you know, stretch his acting muscles. And uh, I mean, because I mean, he's just, you know, for example, like The Body Snatcher is just a great film. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, he he is just so good in that. And I think it's one of his greatest performances Mm -hmm. because one thing about Boris I love is that, uh, for example, in The Body Snatcher, in The Black Room, uh he's just uh it's almost like you don't see him acting Mm -hmm. he's just so smooth the way he you know just his um understated sense of evil and the way he's um just says these lines like in the body snatchers i think in bedlam Mm -hmm. um he's just uh i mean he's a horrible person but um but he's just so uh he's almost so nice about it Uh, and but he's not one of these actors you see. Some actors, you know, you can see all the machinery working. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like that. And uh, but Boris was just so subtle about it, mm-hmm. and that's what made his character stand out so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, forgive my memory, but is Body Snatcher is that one of the um, uh, Val Luton films? Yes, that's the okay. first
1: of Val that's film. Yeah. Yes, that's the first of the three Boris did for Val Luton. Mm-hmm. Body Snatcher, Bedlam an Isle of the Dead.
0: Okay. How did he like working for him? I mean, you mentioned he, he, he worked for Whale, James Whale because he already mm-hmm. thought he was a good director. So was he aware of Val Luton's talents or no?
1: Yes, uh, he seemed to uh, have been. Um, but yes, he uh, um, said he uh, really enjoyed working with Val Luton and helped, uh, thought that Val Luton also kind of helped, uh, um, uh, for lack of a better word, Reinvigorate uh, his career mm-hmm. a little bit because uh, um, some of the stuff he'd been doing in the early 40s, there some of those B pictures for studios like Monogram. I mean, where he, you know, playing Asian villains, and uh, he was doing he did a series of cheap detective movies as Mr. Wong. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, as I said, B type movies, which uh-huh. um, are fun because they're B movies right. and because he did them. Um, but so, so the Luton pictures, uh, gave him some, uh, uh better material. And, and after that, his movies in the fifties for the most part, um, and he didn't make many movies in the fifties, uh, because he was concentrating so much on television and, and theater, mm-hmm. but for the most part, his fifties movies, um, really aren't that great. Uh, a couple of the later ones like Carters of Blood and Haunted Strangler, which he made in London, uh, are good, but. You know, uh, um, the others, um, other than maybe Abbott and Costello, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right. um, really aren't particularly outstanding.
0: Did he have a problem working with a smaller studio, like uh, Monogram or anything like that, or did it matter for him, just as long as he worked? Um,
1: <laughs> I think you're right there. It, it was just work. It doesn't okay. matter whether it's, uh, in any production, you know, from yeah. a big studio like Paramount or Fox or Universal,
3: mm-hmm.
1: some little... Uh, you know uh um you know b picture from monogram or or <laughs> whoever um and uh and you know you look at some of those movies and they're barely some of them are even barely an hour long <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: you know i think like uh some like dick tracy meets gruesome or something isn't that? <laughs> I mean, under, you know, but he anyway um now going into like the 60s you know obviously you already mentioned it that you know a lot of these things got known on television as earlier films and things like that and so he started making a a string of films with basically everybody else that was making horror movies for roger corman you know during the 60s the raven and uh i can't remember all the titles off the top of my head but uh Mm -hmm. Did he, How was his relationship with Roger Corman? I mean, did he just, again, just do the work, or did he have appreciation for him, even if it's on the cheap? <laughs>
1: yeah. um, I, I get the impression, and Boris's agent, his last agent I interviewed for the book, uh, his name was Arthur Kennard, and he was Vincent Price's agent for 35 years. Uh, he was Vincent's agent up until the end, but Arthur also ha- handled Peter Lorre and Boris. He said to me, Gordon, I had all the spooks. And so, um, uh, um, but uh, um, uh, I think it's safe to say that Roger Corman was not Boris's favorite person. (laughs) Um, uh, Vincent Price, uh, I think, who made more pictures with Roger, um, I I think took him for what he was and realized that. But, uh, but, um, But Corman did not work with actors um uh he, you know he told them what to do and show up you know sit here do this do that but he didn't work with them as actors he figured they were seasoned professionals so I uh, gather he just thought okay you guys do your job and I'll do mine mm-hmm. and uh, so um, uh, um uh, you know Bo- uh, K- Roger just was not one of Boris's favorite people and, <laughs> um in fact, uh, Arthur, as I said, Boris's agent, told me, uh, he said, Roger would rather steal a picture than make one. <laughs> so, <laughs> that for what it's worth. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Now, um, some things I'm kind of curious about because I, I just see them, but I don't know much about it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Car- Boris was a known quantity in, by the television age. Um, was there a reason to get him to host Thriller or were they just looking for anybody to host because that was like the Twilight Zone time where you have to have a host and do kind of mysterious spooky TV episodes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, And Thriller was a great series, especially the horror episodes. You watch them today and they're like the, uh, you know, it's in black and white and they're like little movies almost because they were shot uh, on the Universal Studio uh, you know, with these great sets and stuff like this and like I said, especially the horror, you know, uh, episode, they just they just look so good, the photography and stuff like this. But uh, when the uh, executive producer named Hubble Robinson, uh, thriller was his baby, um, he told me that uh, Boris was his sole choice uh, as host. He didn't want anybody else but <laughs> Boris. Cool. And um, for some reason, probably because... Uh, um, There was some hesitation, uh, you know, on the part of Studio Brass about, you know, uh, Boris being the host. But uh, um, the same thing, uh, same situation, Chuck Jones, the great Universal, I mean, pardon me, Warner Brothers cartoon producer did when he had Boris narrate How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He, he, He had heard, Chuck Jones did, he had heard Boris's wonderful recording on vinyl of The Jungle Book. And uh, Boris did new, uh, many recordings of uh, for stories for kids, and uh, one of them being the Jungle Book. And so uh, Chuck Jones uh, said, I want Boris Karloff. And I gather some people at CBS you know, were kind of hesitant about that. And Chuck Jones said, look, I don't want anybody else but Boris Karloff doing this. And they caved. And of course, it became... Uh, classic to
0: this day yeah it's still the best version i feel you know as much as jim carrey or the newer animated versions are you know or even the sequels you know it's the boris Mm -hmm. one (laughs) um now uh i was going to go into that so i'll just ask about that um did he enjoy doing you know he did a fair amount of radio and uh he did uh, the other cartoon voice I can think of is Mad Monster Party. I don't know if he did others beyond that without thinking about it. Um, you know, the Rankin-Bass uh, you yes. know, animated characters, you know, physical little characters. Uh, did he enjoy doing that work as much as doing, you know, stage work or film work?
1: Um, I think so. Um, and um, as I said, it was work. And, uh, you know, he just had that distinctive voice. I mean... Um, you know, you just hear it. You don't have to even see his picture. You hear that voice, and it's just <laughs> unmistakably, mm-hmm. you know, Boris. And uh, there's a great line when he was on Jack Benny's radio show. Um, Benny says, you know, you look so much like Boris Karloff. And <laughs> Boris says to Jack, well, thanks, and you're looking well, too. Um, <laughs> and so, um, uh, and because it's just, you know, the just it was a radio It was a theater and radio trained voice um because he did so many episodes of inner sanctum and lights out and stuff like this and he did a lot of radio mm-hmm. um and of course of course the radio was theater of the mind and <laughs> um uh hyman brown who is the producer of uh inner sanctum said uh, you know boris can play anything <laughs> and uh, um in fact, uh, uh, years later, Hyman Brown lived to be close to 100 years old. But uh, in the, se- uh, the 70s, he produced the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Oh, I and see. I had, so. yeah. <laughs> and I had, I had occasion to meet him in college because I was a broadcasting major um, in college. Um, I worked in uh, radio news for several years. But um, I went to San Francisco State, and we had a broadcasting convention every year with a lot of people from the industry. Well, Hyman Brown was there at about 70. And so I walked up to him and I said, what do you remember about Boris Karloff? And he said, the most wonderful man who ever lived. Um, And this was, you know, like (laughs) uh, Boris did about 10 years. And this was, you know, like 30 plus years after Inner Sanctum. So that was really something. Um, But, uh, you know, Boris was just, uh, um, he, he just loved to work. And uh, um, he kept his private life private. And, uh, um, you know, it's uh, so uh, he was just a very, you know, modest English gentleman with a uh, really wicked sense of humor.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Now, he acted like he, you know, it always seemed like he never turned down any work. But, of course, <laughs> after three Frankenstein films as the monster, uh, that was it. And then they got Glenn Strange and other you know, performance to play the monster. Um, Was it just age or just the annoyance of the character or fear of being typecast further? Or why did he stop playing the monster when he did?
1: Well, I think he thought, uh, if you look at Son of Frankenstein, um, the monster isn't as prominent in it, you know, obviously as the first two. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's very good, but uh, um, he was already – 50-51 50 51 when they shot son of frankenstein mm-hmm. um, compared to when they shot the first one when he was still in his mid 40s so the, f- the physical you know uh, uh trials trials of you know being made up and doing all that work um was just i think he'd had enough of that yeah. and you know yeah. being in makeup for hours on end and just uh just the the physical as I said, ordeal of, of playing that role uh, uh, was enough for him. And he said, well, he used to say he thought the monster be- was becoming sort of a comic prop uh, in <laughs> his world. Um, and so he just thought it was time to hang it up. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, you know, I, I think you know, wisely, uh, he thought it was time to go, and he went. <laughs>
0: Did he ever reconsider even for like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or is he just, I'm done <laughs> at that point?
1: Um, uh, it's my feeling he, he that he thought, I'm I'm through. Okay. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, he was asked to produ- uh, appear in publicity photos for Abbott, Costello and meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not in the film, of course, right. but I've seen pictures of him standing outside the marquee in New York, you know, by the poster for the for the movie and he is said to have said when they asked him well yes as long as i don't have to see the movie (laughs) Um, because um boris really didn't like to see the monster being made fun of now he didn't mind poking fun at his own image which of course he did um you know on television and on radio as i said even you know in advertising and stuff like this i mean he didn't take himself that seriously but he um uh, but he took his role seriously but he mm-hmm. just didn't love to see the monster of uh, being made fun of i mean um it's interesting to you know think what if he had lived to see young frankenstein yeah <laughs> uh, uh, which is just you know one of the funniest movies ever made um uh what he would have thought of that
0: mm-hmm. well it almost like I I, you know obviously I can't speak for Boris but it seemed like he would enjoy it because it wasn't a direct parody of him or the monster he portrayed it was just a parody more of the genre and it it has a few actual scares and Mm -hmm. you know even the real Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein uh, even Son of Frankenstein have some humorous moments in them so they're not Mm-hmm. You yeah, adverse to any humor. That's right.
1: That's right, and and Mel Brooks has pointed out that uh, you know he grew up uh, you know being scared to death by the Frankenstein movies. He thought the monster was going to you know crawl in his crawl for the window or something like that. And but uh, uh, but Brooks was paying uh, homage to James Whale with Young Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and then uh, they even used some of the equipment from the original movies right and uh you know so uh and he, he just did a just it, it's just brilliant all okay. the way across
0: now i assume you've seen the movie gods and monsters which is kind of about whale and his relationship yeah.
2: and it does mm-hmm. have
0: an actor playing mm-hmm. boris carlos not hev- heavily but just briefly and yeah. uh stuff like that do, do you think that's a pretty accurate portrayal or is it kind of soap opera yeah, I, made up garbage
1: (laughs) yeah yeah the uh i enjoyed the movie yeah i thought i thought i thought ian mckellen was just brilliant in that um and uh as he usually is but yeah i enjoyed the film and uh i thought the appearances by uh um having you know an actress pay elsa lanchester and having that man play boris um Mm -hmm. i thought it worked i mean they weren't uh prominent in the movie but i thought they were uh uh i thought they were pretty accurate um, uh, they certainly look like them. And, uh, but, uh, no, I thought uh, uh, the Karloff uh, portrayal in Gods and Monsters was, uh, was apt and fitting.
3: Yeah.
0: And then going back to Abedin Costello, um, obviously he went on, Boris went on to do two Abbott and Costello films after that. Was that kind of as a favor, saying, well, I turned down your Frankenstein picture, let me do The Killer <laughs> and do Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde?
1: Yeah, um, that's possibly yes. I mean, he used to say they were nice chaps, and uh, um, and Bud Abbott said you know, Boris was what else a professional, and uh, but uh, um, uh, perhaps yes, he just thought you know it's uh, um, uh, you know I'm playing a different character. I'm not playing the monster, so I may as well go along with it and have a you know, have some fun with these guys. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, he probably possibly changed his mind once he saw that Abigail Costello mm-hmm. meet Frankenstein, even if he thought, oh, they're making fun of the mon- monster. The film is not that bad of a picture. Oh, yeah,
1: and yeah. it was the most successful movie they ever made. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, it is very enjoyable, you know, and, of course, Bella came back as Dracula and, uh, you know, yeah. Glenn Strange mm-hmm. was the monster and uh, Lon Chaney is, uh Wolfman. <laughs> um now you said something, and this is the secret I alluded to before we went on the air. Here, as um, uh, you said, you graduated from San Francisco State in broadcasting. Well, I did too. <laughs> you know, so you probably did not know that. Um, I was, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I graduated a few years later than you. I think you were class of seventy nine. If I yes, read I was. yeah, yeah. I was mm-hmm. class of eighty eight. So, <laughs> but
1: um, yeah, no, was, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I. Uh... Yeah, just have a, I, those were just, uh, I had a wonderful time there mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, just uh, learning the business, uh, you know, classes in radio production and TV production and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, because they had one of the best broadcasting departments in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had classmates from out of state. You know, mm-hmm. guys, I knew there were I knew guys from New York and Boston who came there to major in broadcasting,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, but yeah, I, I had a wonderful time there, and uh, I have a real soft spot, um, uh, for it in my heart. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Now, as you got that degree. You know, in my case, I worked for channel 44 in San Francisco and uh, worked in newspapers and things like that. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't now, but you know, I think I put my broadcasting degree to work at least now I can do a podcast and know what I'm doing. Uh, but uh, um, did you, I, I couldn't find much information other than you graduated San Francisco state. So did you have a career in the broadcast industry? And if so, what did you do? Yes, I
1: did. Yes. I, uh, I, um yeah. I, uh, a couple of years after school, um, I got a job, you know, we were all, everybody's, everybody used to tell us at school, start small, <laughs> you know, everybody else wants to work in a major city, but they'd say, start small. So I did start small. I got my big break as it were, working as a reporter for a, uh, public radio station in rural Minnesota. <laughs> uh, where, you know, where the tallest thing around was a grain elevator and, <laughs> um, it was it was just like you know a farm country literally. Um, uh, we were nowhere near Minneapolis Saint Paul. It was like the other side of the state from where we were. I was closer to South Dakota. Sioux Falls was an hour west of us, and that's where you went to do anything like see better movies and eat ethnic food. And so um, I did, I worked for Minnesota Public Radio for about two years, uh, moving you know moving up from reporter to morning anchorman. And then when I thought I'd uh, reached my peak in Minnesota um, and it was um, I uh, uh, have family here in Georgia. So uh, I I came down to Georgia and I worked for some commercial radio stations here and um, and did some public radio work here for a while.
0: Very good. And um, let's see, what else was I going to ask? Um, <laughs> so how did you, you, you said San Francisco State, which I agree is one of the best, uh, brought, is that what led you to the Bay Area or, because you didn't well, grow up, you didn't grow up in the San Francisco Bay Area. so no, I didn't.
1: Um, uh, no, um, I, uh, um, let you see, well, my mother um, had family in the Bay Area. Uh, oh. My grandparents lived there, you know, years and years ago, like in the 50s and uh early sixties. And so, you know, as a kid, uh, our family, I've got two brothers. Uh, we'd all go. You know, we, um, um, sometimes we visited my, our grandparents out there. And so uh, I, so I was familiar with the Bay area mm-hmm. and actually my parents got divorced when I was 15. And so um, we were in the Chicago area. And um, so mom and I, I was the youngest and still at home. Um, we got in the uh, Camaro, And drove to California. So I finished high school in Palo Alto. Um, Yeah. Uh, I went to Chico State for two years. after, um, And uh, went to Chico State for two years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny. It was considered a party school 40 years ago. And I think it still is. Uh, To this day, which is pretty funny when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, spent two years at Chico State. And then... um, uh, because uh, San Francisco State really had the better department for what I wanted to do. I transferred uh, to San Francisco.
0: Okay. So did you do broadcasting at Chico State as best as you could until you transferred, or did you have uh, well, a listen, completely did, different major or something?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well actually, yeah, I did do news on the uh, Chico radio station. Um, and uh, I, I did do, new, do news there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I got my, uh, I actually started doing voice work on the air at Chico. And then I just continued it at uh, at San Francisco. And I still remember the time. Thank God it was the student station because I actually uh, broke up one day on the air. (laughs) I can tell you another time, but I actually broke up in the middle of the newscast. (laughs) 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 Well, actually not the middle, it was toward the end. So that was probably the saving grace. (laughs)
0: Now, were you still uh, working for NPR or wherever you were working when you decided to write this book about Boris Karloff? Or how did um, that come about?
1: Okay, well, I uh, um, uh, let me see. Well, I I actually, uh, while I was still in high school in Palo Alto, um, based on the research I'd done then, um, I did write an article about Boris. Hmm. And I submitted it to some little quarterly magazine that dealt with popular culture, something I'd see on the, uh, you know, magazine racks. Um, uh, and uh, they were going to publish it while I was still a senior in high school. Uh, yeah, I was going to, it's going to be my first sale. They're going to pay me $15 for it. And um, then by the time I graduated a year later, they actually went out of business. Um, so there, you know, there went my, you know, published in high school. Opportunity, but um, uh, but I sold it to Famous Monsters uh, while during my senior year at San Francisco State. Hmm. Um, so before I graduated, um, I had the article published in issue 153 for oh, all you okay. Famous Monsters. All you I Famous prob- Monsters. Yeah, I probably saw
0: three. it because that's when I was reading it. You know, I mean, I've gone back and gotten most of the earlier issues, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, def- it was
1: that year it was 79. That's when uh, there were a whole glut of of Dracula movies, right. and you know, there was *Love at First Bite*. There was *Dracula* with Frank Langella, and there was uh, Nosferatu. And so the uh, this issue of *Frankenstein*, of famous monsters, I mean, um, had a cover from Nosferatu on it, and that's the one in my article on Boris. Oh, so, no. um, so yeah, you know, I I sold it while I was still in college, and then um, I could have just stopped there, but then. You know, I finished college, and I had a job, and I had money, and um, but just Boris just stayed <laughs> subject of interest for me. So, um, so when I had uh, was able to, I uh, was able to travel more and do research. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Los Angeles. I went to New York. Um, I went to the Museum of Broadcasting to see some of his work on video. Mm-hmm. I went to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which has one of the best film. TV and theater research centers in America. Um, a lot of people, uh, people from the industry, donated their personal files to the university, so you can go there as I did and look at people's actual personal papers. So, um, so I just gathered more material as my point, and then I uh, bought a used Brother word processor um, <laughs> before I got my first computer, and I sat down and wrote the book.
3: Mm. <laughs>
0: Now, is this your only book or are you working on another project or have you? Other so books? far, it's the
1: only one. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not working on anything currently. Okay. Um, I'm still writing the crest of this one. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, well, especially if you have a revised version. You know, I didn't know you had the earlier version until I did the research mm-hmm. and I go, oh, okay. Um, your your story's not. <laughs> go ahead.
1: I was going to say, in fact, uh, um, they uh, use mine as a reference here in Atlanta at Turner Classic Movies. Mm -hmm.
0: oh wow okay that's cool yes and the
1: late robert osborne told me that himself Hmm. um uh there's a uh being in georgia uh, there's a gone with the wind festival held here every year and um uh so they've had people from the movie and associated with it who've written about it um you know come and talk and stuff like this and robert osborne would was often a a guest there and so that's where i met him and that's where he told me they used it as a reference Hmm. In fact, uh, and one year, they were using uh, <clears throat> they were doing an all uh, Boris was star of the month on TCM, mm. and so I actually went to their offices here in Atlanta because I because they there was a possibility of my doing some writing for them. Um, that didn't pan out, but anyway, they I was watching the Mummy one night, and Roger, I mean pardon me, Robert comes on after the movie as he always did. And the first words out of his mouth were, according to a Karloff biographer named Gordon Shriver, (laughs) I almost fell off the couch. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, you know, Robert Osborne just mentioned me on national television. And so uh, you can imagine that was uh, (laughs) something of a uh, something of a of of an upper.
0: (laughs) Sounds very good. yeah. Yeah now the the other book i have I, I have the you know and i have it right here is the films of boris karloff by richard bojarski you know and that's the, the one that came out let me look at the year it came out it's like um jeez i can't remember 1974 and mm-hmm. um did you use other references to create your book and everything like that
1: yes um yeah. there were a uh, um in the early 70s there were actually uh several books on boris yeah uh, there was an ackerman book i mentioned there was one called karloff by a uh, british author named peter underwood mm-hmm. uh, there was another one by a friend of his which is excellent called dear boris
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, the woman who wrote it was a uh personal friend of his and godmother to sarah so she wrote it from a personal standpoint but point standpoint but it was also a uh you know a, a biography of him and his work not just you know, a, a memoir about him.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
1: um, uh, and there were, uh, so I did use, uh, um, to some, you know, those to some extent. And, uh, then, uh, um, then I just did research on my own. And it was really interesting, um, is how, uh, some things, uh, when I was contacting people, one door would lead to another, for example, uh, I said, Boris did the play, The Lark, on Broadway with Julie Harris. Well, one of the people in it was Theodore Bacall, mm-hmm. um, who was just you know, so well-known for Fiddler in the Roof, and um, uh, he was a folk singer, and you know, uh, a lot of film and TV work. Mm-hmm. But he said, well, um, I don't remember much about Mr. Carlock, because we didn't have any scenes together, but he said, but you should reach the man who was our production stage manager in The Lark. So I contacted that man who's not well known mm-hmm. and he remembered everything like it was yesterday. Oh, wow. So, he, so he told me all about Boris and, uh, um, Julie Harris and, mm-hmm. and Lillian Hellman, who did the, uh, American adaptation for the play. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one door would open to another. And, uh, um, and, uh, so it's kind of amazing how, uh, uh, people are so forthcoming,
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh about Boris um it it just says so much about him and I mean Mercedes McCambridge um you know great character actress and um the voice of the devil and the exorcist um (laughs) the uh um I saw her met her. she and Boris were on radio together uh you know in the 30s I met her you know like 50 years later and um she said to me uh Uh, She remembered Boris as being like one of the gentlest men she ever met Mm -hmm. and she said in the I hope you do him justice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was extremely kind of her to say that Mm -hmm. and I like to think I did because it's just not about the movies. Some of the earlier books and works were dealt with the movies but they've been covered very well before Mm
3: -hmm. but
1: I touched on movies and television and radio and his recordings Mm -hmm. because those are things many people don't know as much about
0: right um do you also uh cover stage work that was i have a couple more questions so that's one of them is stage oh yes uh, stage work. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay.
1: yes i uh, in fact one of the uh i was able one of my great sources was uh bruce gordon who most people remember as frank nitty and the untouchables <laughs> uh,
3: uh
1: again you know character actor he often played hoods and you know uh, cops and stuff like this and uh Anyway, but when Bruce Gordon was 25 years old, he was one of the policemen on Broadway with Boris in *Arsenic and Old Oh
3: wow!
1: <laughs> yes, uh, he, in cool. fact, he, he, uh, he even joked to me about how he'd gone to see Boris play in the movies, play the Frankenstein monster, and just a few years later, Green was, you know, in person acting with him on Broadway. And so, and Bruce Gordon had a great memory. And uh, Boris was very scared about being on Broadway because he had never been on Broadway. Um, and he really, at the time, he really didn't think movie actors belonged there.
3: Mm.
1: He thought, you know, like classic stage actors, Broadway-trained people should be on Broadway, <laughs> not Hollywood people. Mm. And so they would sit on these long benches at the rehearsals. And um, so there were several people sitting on a bench and Bruce Gordon said he'd sit there and you could they could feel the bench shaking. And it was Boris, because he was just, just, um, you know, so nervous about (laughs) being on stage and acting and, you know, performing with New York actors. And they thought, well, this man's a Hollywood actor. Why is he so nervous? But, you know, he, uh, um, in fact, he almost left the play, but he he, uh, walked around New York one night and said, look, I committed to this and I'm going to do it. And of course, it became you know one of the most popular Broadway shows of all time. Right, and that also, that also helped him make a make him a household name. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, how, how late in his career did he do stage work?
1: Let me see. Well, his last stage work, um, non-Broadway, was actually in 1961. Okay. Um, he was almost 75 years old, mm-hmm. um, but because uh, uh, his last Broadway show was the lark that was 55. Um, but he, uh, in, I remember in 1960 and 61, um, there he came, he went to San Juan, uh, Puerto Rico, because there was a, uh, for a few years, this man I know, uh, ran a drama festival in San Juan and he got name actors to come down to San Juan and do plays. He had people like Margaret O'Brien and Gigi, And uh, Farley Granger and Tom Helmore, who I mentioned before, did Witness for the Prosecution. And uh, he got Marcel Marceau to appear there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but he got Boris to come two years in a row. The first year, Boris did Our Second Old Lace. Mm -hmm. And the second year, he did On Borrowed Time, which was one of his favorite plays. And then a year later, um, in Monterey, California, um, Boris uh, did On Borrowed Time there for a week. Hmm. Uh, and that was his last stage role.
0: Hmm. Now did he stop doing the stage role because of what we said earlier, the emphysema and getting older? Yes. Yeah yes,
1: I think it was just uh, um, <clears throat> he had a he had an arthritic knee um, and uh, I think it just uh, um, the uh, yeah, it was just um, if you look at him in the raven, um, he looks pretty well, but then you look at him just a few years later. In like the niche affair the sorcerers which is a really good film i think mm-hmm. and he, he looks visibly older um, and so uh, yes i i think it was just the uh uh the physical uh uh requirements of doing a show eight uh, times a week um that he just thought okay um you know i love theater but uh, i think it's time to hang it up uh, Mrs. Karloff told me he was offered the chance to do Arsenic old Lace in London, because his, one of his desires was to do a play in London. He mm-hmm. had never appeared on stage there and um, and never did. But when the time came, he was offered the chance to do Arsenic old Lace there. But it, it, by that point, he was too old. Oh,
0: not even for a one off or something, I guess. That's too bad. I, I guess, yes. yeah. <laughs> Um, I got one more question and then we'll kind of wrap things up is just, you know, the age old rivalry of uh, Boris and Bela. How accurate is that? Were they really at odds with each other throughout their career? Is that a little bit of Hollywood, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was Hollywood malarkey uh, yeah. to use the old word. <laughs> but uh, yes, I mean, um, uh, that was just you know studio publicity. I mean, you know, press agents probably came up with stuff like this. And I, because here they were, they were two, the, the two big horror stars at Universal and um, they made eight pictures together and they, uh, um, and they were, they were not personal friends. Um, they respected each other, but Boris had his life and Bella had his life. They had each had their own circle of friends. They did not socialize off screen. They worked together but they were professionals. And so the uh, this rivalry stuff I think is just, is, is just junk. And I think uh, as his career sagged, as I said before, Bella may have uh, felt, and this is just a guess on my part, some professional jealousy because Boris was still getting decent roles <laughs> and Bella was getting offered junk. Um, yeah. But uh um, you know, that's just my take on it, but, uh, I don't, it's just, I think it was just all, uh, uh, Hollywood, you know, just press agent right. stuff.
0: Right. But also didn't Bela like go into like, uh, dabble in a drug addiction and things like that, that Boris never did.
1: Yeah. Bor- yeah. Uh, Bela, uh, developed an addiction to morphine. Yeah. And, uh, so he had to go through uh, what we can call detox, you know, uh, by today's standards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and clean up. Um, So so he had his personal problems and money problems and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because as you indicated, he was making real awful stuff there. (laughs) The Ed Wood movies and things like Old Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. Yeah. And uh, I tried to watch that once and it was like the Chinese water torture. It's painful. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> but I've seen uh, it too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, Bella's end w- was kind of sad. Um, mm-hmm. Although he did appear um, once he had his health back. Actually, Bella did tour on stage in Dracula. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, he, he was still working as, you know, his iconic character. um Um, and uh um so uh you know there was work but it just uh his their careers just literally took a different turn mm -hmm. and because he he died in 53 and and uh boris died in 69 so um uh you know boris just lived longer um Mm -hmm. and was able to uh as i said just do uh uh, work in other avenues, the, the television, the radio work.
0: Right. Wasn't Bela older anyway? So, yeah.
1: You know. uh, let me see. Um, not by much. I mean, just okay. um, a... Okay. I think it's just a few years difference between okay. the it two. It's, it.
0: it's just for us live longer. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. The inevitable question, which if you've been interviewed before, the probably it's probably been asked. What's your favorite Boris Karloff film or radio show or mm-hmm. stage production or TV show?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um that's uh that's that's gotcha. Um, let's see. Well, um uh, I, I really love watching the body snatcher. Um, because he, he's in almost, it's, uh, okay, can I have two? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that and Targets. Mm-hmm. targets uh, the, body good, snatcher, yeah. the Body Snatcher is so well-made. I mean, <laughs> it's got other good actors in it, um, and it's a very literate movie. If you listen to it, the dialogue in that film is great, <laughs> and the, the, this cat and mouse kind of relationship that uh, Henry Danielle has with Boris i mean because uh boris practically blackmails uh danielle and um uh and boris taunts him and stuff like this because he says like oh toddy and danielle says don't call me that <laughs> and um, so it, they're like two snakes you know at each other and um and it's just you know, the, the, you know it's very subtle photography and you know great direction by robert wise um and you know and boris uh, Wise told me he even helped Bella, you know, you know, do their scenes together because he said Bella's memory wasn't strong and he had trouble remembering his lines at the time. But he said Boris was very patient, and worked with him so their scenes would come off as well as possible. And the flip the targets, um, it's just uh, he could not have gone out better. It's really too bad it wasn't his last film. You know, he plays a Boris Karloff kind of actor, but he's just so smooth in it it doesn't look like he's acting and, um, and it's just got so many uh, good digs on Hollywood at the time. And, you know, it's in, there's a lot of in jokes and the fact that here's Bogdanovich who wrote about Hollywood, making a movie about Hollywood. Right. Um, And he's playing a director trying to talk Boris who plays an actor like himself into making a movie. So it's, it's a, you know, semi autobiographical movie because at one point you know bogdanovich says well why, why won't you make this movie uh you know uh uh i want to make and finally he says well i'll go offer it to vincent price <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know just little stuff like that but boris is just he's so subtle and um uh it's just uh there's that wonderful scene we've seen where he does the appointment in samara scene um you know about death having an appointment in samara uh that's the scene where they shot it Bogdanovich said, "Cut!" and the whole crew applauded.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, As Boris did that whole speech in one take, mm. and um, and and Peter told me you could tell he was visibly moved, you know, by that reaction. So, um, again, yeah, those are or um, uh, two I could watch over and over. Yeah, um, you know, there's others I'll watch for fun, like The Comedy of Terrors. Where they're just having a great time. Yeah. And uh, you know, or the black room where he plays two roles. So but mm-hmm. those two I can just watch, you know, look like, um and never get tired of them.
0: Yeah. I would just say, you know, I have my favorites too, and the, the, the ones you mentioned are good. I like those a lot. I don't know what my favorite would be. I mean, I could be all cliche and just say Bride of Frankenstein or something, but <laughs> um <laughs> I, I, I'm surprised by ones I've seen over the years, like The Ghoul. Um, and uh, what's another one that I've liked over the years? Um, um, I'm not terribly fond of The Original Mummy. I find that one a little bit boring. <laughs> but the thing I was going to say, though, in general about Boris, even if the film is so-so, he's always fascinating to
1: watch. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes he's the best thing in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he, he, could, he knew how to rise above his material. I mean, um, uh, even in uh, I can't think what film uh, it is right now, but he says, "Like you think I'm mad, don't you?" (laughs) And uh, the way he says it, it works. Right. Um, And uh, um, and it's and as uh, and some of his mad scientist movies um, are just really great. I mean, like I think uh, like the man who changed who uh, the man who they couldn't hang. It's like 10 little Indians almost because he picks all these guys off one by one and they're all stuck in this house. And, but yeah, that one and the man who changed his mind, which was made in England. But yeah, some of those uh, mad scientist movies are just, they're great fun.
0: Or Frankenstein 1970. (laughs) (laughs) And um, another one I kind of am fond with is just uh, because Mario Bava is the, uh, black sabbath oh yes two versions of it but you know they all have that
1: yeah i've seen both of them and uh and because as you know the italian version is is much different yeah um and more suggestive than the american version um and uh but yeah that whole just that whole uh story with bella with Porus as the vampire is just it's just great yes i mean (laughs) it's really kind of creepy even the way they uh, you know you hear like the little kid howling outside mm-hmm. and stuff like this and uh, um, but yeah that, that's a really strong film mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: so that's and, uh, probably up there yeah. I can't say you know I could even say Grinch is my favorite or you know anything well, he's I'll done. tell you a
1: story There's, um, as I, I mentioned the Sorcerers which mm-hmm. was one of Boris's last good movies mm-hmm. I mean he did like the Venetian Affair and uh, stuff like this with Robert Vaughn um, which I think is kind of a dull movie, but he's got a good role in it. But when you get the sorcerers um, for Michael Reeves, who made Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, yeah, that's good um, uh, you know, it was filmed in England. And uh, so Boris uh, and so Patrick Curtis, who was then married to Raquel Welch, was one of the film's producers. Mm-hmm. So uh, Patrick told me uh, he's, we're friends. He actually was a, a baby in Gone with the Wind. He was baby Beau, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh that's a baby he's in the movie anyway so he produced the sorcerers and he and Raquel went to London Mm -hmm. and um, the the man who met them said well this is your first visit to London you know what would you like to see and they said well we'd like to meet Christopher Lee (laughs) because they both like the Dracula movies Mm -hmm. and so this guy arranged for them to have dinner with Christopher Lee and uh, Patrick told me there was this other guy at the table that night who had sandy hair and glasses he said, "I didn't know who he was. I didn't care because I was just fascinated with Christopher, mm-hmm. and I didn't know who this guy was. And uh, the guy, the other guy, couldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, the mm-hmm. other guy was Michael kane, mm-hmm. and the the Ipcrest file opened you know, like a week later, mm-hmm. and suddenly the whole world knew who Christopher, who Michael Kane was." Yeah,
0: <laughs> this just came across. Just thinking about all the stuff we've been talking about, and it's just out of left field. But it's like. Uh, if he was living in England during the 60s and late 50s, um, of course, Hammer Films in England kind of revitalized you know, the horror genre, and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing kind of recreated everything. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Did they ever once consider uh, hiring Boris Karloff for any of their pictures, or do you have any knowledge I, of that?
1: I have no knowledge of that. I've never read anything mm-hmm. where um, anybody seems to have mentioned Boris in terms of being in a Hammer film. It's
3: interesting.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I, when you in retrospect you think well why not. Yeah. Um and uh they said he was you know local talent as it were so um uh and um plus the Hammer films were so popular and stuff like this and um and even if you look at some of the uh supporting actors like Dana Elliott who uh, who made so many Hammer pictures, um, became known as character actors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And uh, you wonder, uh, um, oh, why not? Uh, uh, but I've just never seen anything to the effect that he was approached to do one.
0: Yeah, I guess they just wanted to, to mean separated and different and not rely on the same universal monsters or something I don't know I'm making it up. I have just, no idea, <laughs> maybe,
1: yes, who knows I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe they just thought that uh uh Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were just such strong a uh, vital uh you know uh, names to carry a film that they didn't need Boris. who knows
0: yeah. It's just odd since you said he was living there at the time when they're making yeah. most of their prime films, so, you know.
1: Exactly. And he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's flying back to California every couple of, uh, every you know, a couple of times a year, mm-hmm. you know, to do a movie or a, uh, a TV show. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that, that pretty much wraps up my <laughs> line of questioning. You've you passed the test. You are a Boris Karloff fan. <laughs> um, uh, I usually wrap things up by just asking you to kind of, uh, if you have a website or if, you have, or if you're making any personal appearances or how people can get in contact with you or get copies of your book. So have the floor.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I am on Facebook. Um, I do do social media. So I am on Facebook, Gore Schreiber, and um, I uh, don't have a website uh, uh, currently. I did at one point, but it wasn't all that successful. <laughs> um, uh, so, but, uh, but the book is available uh, from me. It's available for the publisher, Bear, B-E-A-R, Manor, M-A-N-O-R Media. Uh, it's available from them on their website. It's available from Amazon um i recently was pleased to find out that some independent bookstores um around the country uh are carrying it too um and uh and of, of course it's on amazon so um it is certainly available out there and um you know from those venues and uh it's also available for for me and uh, <laughs> nice part about it is you get it signed by me mm-hmm. and so uh um, you know, I hope people enjoy it, but I really did want to you know, pay tribute to this really, really great man um, who, you know, we still remember. And, uh, and I like to think, you know, because film retains an image, of Boris Karloff will always be with us. Very good. Well,
0: I want to thank you, Gord, for being a guest with me today on the Fun Ideas podcast. And well, thank you. It was
1: a real pleasure. And uh, it's nice to meet another San Francisco steak ready, hey.
0: <laughs> and a fellow uh, Boris Karloff fan. Yes, yeah. um, and, that's what yeah. that's what intrigued me. As I said, ooh, he wrote a book about Boris Karloff. I could do a show about that. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's still a household name. But there's certain actors you could name, just yep. you know, you could just you know, who were popular. I mean, you could mention Paul Muni, mm-hmm. Robert Montgomery, you know, uh, or somebody. Um, <clears throat> and people might say. I'm sorry, I don't know who that is, but you mentioned Boris and everybody, you know, uh, no matter how old they are up to a point, um, knows who Boris Karloff was.
0: Very good. And so the book again is called Boris Karloff, A Man Remembered by Gorge Shriver. And he said, like he said, it's available from Bear Manor Media, who has published most of my books. And uh, that wraps it up for another Fun Ideas
1: podcast. Thank you. The pleasure was mine.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you, Gord Shriver, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 155 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner, Goldfarb, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.